Welcome to Dominating Your Investments, a podcast where you'll learn about stocks, personal finance, and creating generational wealth. I'm your host, Dom Rinaldi. In this week's bonus episode, we'll be sharing the long-awaited recording of a Twitter Spaces event that was specifically geared around Palantir, ticker PLTR. In this event, it allowed me the opportunity to speak with some of the most well-known followers on Palantir in the financial Twitter community, such as MM, or you may know him as at Markets and Mayhem, Francis, you may know him as at Investi Analyst, Matt, at MT underscore Capital One, Gannon, at Gannon Breslin, and Tom, the YouTube king of Palantir, at I am Tom Nash. So this was an excellent event to deep dive on where Palantir is today and where they're going in the future. So what are you waiting for? Let's start dominating your investments today. We're going to start uh, moving forward with the space here. We want to talk about Palantir. This is a company where there's a lot of passions on both sides. We understand, you know, there's a lot of people that don't really appreciate what Palantir is doing and just kind of focus on their past and maybe some of the things they think are scandals. And then on the other side, there's a lot of very impassioned people that want to invest in this company, that want to learn more. And in the middle, there's a fair amount of people that just sort of haven't really heard much about it, don't understand the business, um, and, and probably would be more interested in it if they did. So what we want to do today is really talk about our research in Palantir, have a, a, you know, a, a bit of focus on where we think the company is going and where it's been, and then open up to more general discussion and then eventually Q&A. And for all those who have tuned in, uh, thank you so much for joining us. You know, we really appreciate it. If you aren't able to stay the whole time or you want to listen to it later, we're going to be posting recordings of this for everyone. So, you know, don't sweat it. If you if you caught something and, you know, you're like, oh, boy, I really want to hear that whole segment again, you will be able to. And we'll gladly offer that to you. Um, so uh, at this point, you know, we're going to kick it off. Uh, I wanted to first just start off and thank everyone for joining us as speakers uh, and everyone who's co-hosting with me here, I, this is a really exciting topic for us all. This is a company where I personally feel like their technology is five or ten years ahead of their competition, and that's part of their moat. But another part of their moat that I think is really important is that they haven't in, in any way really isolated themselves to any single industry, to any, ver- you know, to any of these verticals, but also to any size of business, as we're seeing with Foundry for Builders is opening up Palantir to a lot of new avenues of business as are their investments in smaller companies through these uh, these SPAC offerings that they're, you know, getting involved in, which are really interesting because each one of these offerings is pushing Foundry into new areas so that they build out, you know, uh, uh, support, either modular or full Foundry support for these new areas to be able to process information and also to be able to allow developers within those companies and within Palantir to write new low-code and no-code applications that sit on top of the Palantir platform. So it's really exciting to see See that because you know the bear case against Palantir for the longest time was hey um, you know we we don't really uh, believe that this company can get going on a commercial scale and so we think that we're going to you know just just see this as a government contractor and value it as a government contractor and really nothing could be further from the truth Palantir is a company who made its entry into tech through government contracting with the Gotham platform that was largely built out of the fear of another 9-11 happening and trying to do everything possible to prevent that from happening. But what Foundry is, is it's built on that tried and true government grade life or death kind of technology. I mean, you're imagining with Gotham, this is something that was used in the field where literally people's lives hung in the balance if it didn't work, if it crashed or if it wasn't accurate. And so you have something that's battle ready. 
and it's being used in the commercial space and it's scaling not only to different industries, but also into the applications of where Foundry actually operates. So we've seen, you know, Edge AI come out, which is really exciting too, because Edge AI is essentially the idea of taking the, the really core components of Foundry and putting it into something that's embedded or at the edge. So you see Edge AI in meta constellations and you see Apollo uh, further able to orchestrate and automate the deployment of Edge AI Foundry as well as Foundry as a whole. So you can do deployments anywhere in the world as long as you have IP connectivity and a platform that supports that edge AI, which is pretty incredible given where we've come from, where people look at Foundry as a sort of stodgy platform that takes a year to roll out. It only suits, you know, a, a, over just a little over 100 companies in the Fortune 1000, and they don't have a very big addressable market to now where they're targeting small, medium, large enterprise sized businesses where Foundry can operate not only in the cloud but uh, in the, on the edge as well. And where deployment times have gone from a year plus from signing the contract to you know, materially shorter times and eventually months and weeks and maybe someday days. And also where the you know, engineers, the four deployed engineers, because some people would like to equate Palantir to this consultancy, that it's really a body shop. And nothing could be further from the truth. And I think Apollo really illustrates that point because four deployed engineers are less and less uh, intensively needed on a per site basis. With what Apollo is able to do, you know, you have less people needed, so each engineer can handle more sites. So that's really exciting. And the last thought I'll leave is, when you talk about what Palantir is doing, you know, look at Gotham as their bread and butter. Look at Foundry as sort of like a separate company, almost a startup, because that's what it really is. They've only been around for several years, their growth is rapid. They're in a space that's incredibly large, especially with the expansions of their total addressable market that I talked about. And so when you look at that sales and marketing spend, it shouldn't be a concern. It should be something that excites you as an investor because they're building brand recognition and they're getting in front of decision makers that will ultimately decide whether Foundry fits the vision of their business and its digital transformation. So with that, I want to open it up with, uh, you know, for other hosts and speakers to join us to share their thoughts on Palantir. We can go back and forth and really discuss what excites us about this company. So I'll start with you, Rahul. I wanted to talk to you because I know that, um, you know, Palantir's come on your radar more, uh, more recently in terms of trying to get back in. You were in after the DPO, as I understand it. Uh, and now you're looking to get back in as an investor, or maybe you have. But I wanted you to share your thoughts. What got you interested in Palantir? And, and really, you know, what, what gets you excited about this business moving forward? Yeah, yeah, ma'am. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, thanks for uh, setting this up first most. Um, but yeah, uh, I was in at the DPO. I got in right after, I believe, at like, I think it was 13 bucks. Um, and at that time, there were so, it was just flat, right? If, I don't know how many people here followed it, but when it came out, it was sitting around 10 to 12 range for at least three, four months till that second earnings or maybe it was the first earnings they actually reported publicly in november um the stock actually went down after hours and then slowly from there you saw that 13 dollars to i think it was like 35 almost rally um and that's what really i think brought more attention to it even though this company's been established for 20 plus years i believe or maybe a little less than that but around that time frame and it's you know it's it's it's, it's it has a lot of contracts it's been around for quite some time um so i was interested mainly because um my previous job, uh, you know, before the job I'm in currently is was purely around data management, right? This is something I was talking to MM about. I worked at Bloomberg for about eight years and Bloomberg's known for providing financial data and services through its platform to the financial market. So a lot of the work we would also do there is around data analytics and 
data warehousing and, you know, figuring out how to like optimize, you know, all types of like data that is unstructured and, uh, you know, things that's going on with technology as well, which I think one thing we'll probably touch on in this call as well, because, you know, Palantir is more than a data company. So that's what interested me initially. But at that time, I honestly didn't spend as much time as I wanted to, to like kind of hold that position. So I exited, um, you know, fairly soon, maybe a month after I bought it. Um, because I really wanted to see because that rally happened so quick and I'm not a short-term trader. So I like to kind of build positions long-term. So I wanted to see how things played out and then it kind of popped and it came back to the 20s and it settled there and it's been basing there for seven, eight months. And now I've seen a lot more institutions have started buying it. I've had more time to read into it. I've actually shared a thread that I put together um, by asking all these speakers what they thought about Palantir. Um, so that's where I currently am. And I am looking to kind of restart that position this is what i was talking to mm about in our last spaces um, because i'm super interested in like what they're doing i just hate the fact that they have all these misconceptions around it. i think that's something we're going to try to dispel you know in today's conversation as well because i do think that they have like you know strong technology things they're doing um you know around foundry around the other applications and services they offer uh this company has a lot of potential right and the way they're investing in these spacs to kind of you know really kind of like elaborate what, what what type of markets and companies they're in. So yeah, um, that's where I currently am. I do, I, I think I, I missed the, I guess that base pop that happened last week out of 26, which we knew was coming. Um, MM had mentioned, um, you know, this is something that could happen because it was building up pretty well. So I'm fine with paying a little bit more. I just want to understand the company a bit better, which I think I do now because I had, you know, quite some time to kind of look into all the different parts of it and kind of block out the noise that we see on Twitter. Um, so yeah, with that, I mean, I'm happy to kind of pass around the table because I know I'm sure all the others have a lot more knowledge on this subject than I might, but uh, that's, that's where I am right now. Thanks for cool. And that thread you shared was awesome. So I appreciate that. And um, you know, it's, it's always good, like you said, to try to dispel, dispel some of these myths and some of these rumors and things like that. You know, one of the prime examples of that that we saw within the last couple of weeks was uh, this whole sort of New York post story about how there is allegedly a vulnerability in foundry that let unauthorized FBI personnel access warrant data and other kinds of data. And, you know, the reality of that situation was the customer didn't properly configure the platform. And, you know, Palantir was for some reason blamed. And I think part of that is the sort of scorn for them in the media. Uh, and we saw, a, you know, an interesting situation play out that kind of underlines the idea of the customer misconfiguring the product because Elasticsearch was used as a part of the terrorist watch list. Um, and when it was, uh, in this, it was basically misconfigured the same way. And I believe it was in Bahrain where the FBI's terrorist watch list sort of cloud hosted instance in Elastic had no password. So anyone around the world could download the entire terrorist watch list, look through it, you know, understand what the, uh, what the authorities in the U.S. were target, targeting, who they were targeting. And yet, you know, Elasticsearch wasn't blamed for that fiasco, even though it was the same thing. You know, the customer misconfigured the product. It's kind of like if you bought a house and you left your front door open and your neighbor went in your house, you wouldn't be happy about that, but it wouldn't be logical to blame the builder of the house, right? And that's kind of what happened in that New York Post thing. And that speaks to the, the misunderstandings of this company and the sort of uh, penchant for some to just jump all over that. So important to, to address that. Um, Matt, I see you're back with us as co-host. Is your mic working now? 
I believe so. Yeah, Can you hear me? awesome. So I wanted to give you the floor Great. so you could talk more about Palantir, your views of it uh, as an investment, what you see with the company moving forward, and and really your opinion on uh, you know why this company is is standing out from some of the others in the tech space. Yeah, no problem. Um, so basically, my whole exposure to Palantir basically started like around the DPO. I traded it quickly. Um, I bought in at 10. I didn't really have a huge understanding of what the company was doing. Eventually sold in the 20 range. Um, and then like I recently graduated from school. Um, I went and I transitioned from a mechanical engineering role into um, something more data specific. And that's when basically when I started working with like a, a huge company and um, trying to build data solutions for them, I started realizing the power of the Palantir platform. So just within my own experience, like working with legacy uh, database systems, all those point solutions built on top of that fragmented data, it's a headache to say the least. Um, I know a good quote would be what Eric um, Schmidt said, the CEO of Google. This was in like 2010. He said, um, every two days, the amount of data um, that the entire world had before 2003 is created. Um, and I I'd imagine that has uh, only accelerated. Um, so basically, like, like connecting my workplace experience, starting to research Palantir in depth, seeing what they're offering, um, and the whole like ability not to displace a company's data systems, rather just to build around them and offer solutions built upon top of that. Like that just almost like spoke to me from um, just an engineering perspective. Um, and ever since then, I've just been super into everything Palantir is doing. Um, it's my third biggest position now. And uh, yeah, I'm excited for what the future holds. I'm trying my best to try to get some information out there because I do know there's a lot of uh, misinformation circulated around and uh, it's been good so far. But I'll pass it off to maybe Francis. I know he's had a lot of, uh, put out a lot of information and great content. And he's one of the people that uh, I picked his brain quite a bit. So it'd be great to hear from him. Sure. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Matt. Um, yeah, thanks for hosting me up on on this platform, on the spaces on the Sunday uh, morning over here. So yeah, um, I think you guys have all pretty much nailed the whole thesis around Palantir. I think you guys have nailed most of it for the most part. I think my own story started with Palantir actually before they came public. Uh, roughly at about 2018. Um, if you guys knew about periods where um, they were known as this hyper-secretive company um, from 2018, um, you guys probably heard about the ICE issue that happened sometime during 2019 as well. Um, and so I'd always known about Palantir long before they came public. Um, and obviously, as most of you touched on, I also worked within the data analytics and the data science and machine learning industry. So I was like a product manager. Um, I was a product manager. I was leading primarily um, data analytics teams. So that was my career up until last year. I worked with data scientists, data engineers, solutions architect, data architect, and all pretty much everyone in the machine learning and data science. And I was working in the financial industry last year. And so my goal as a project lead and um, product manager primarily was just making sure we were building models, machine learning. I was working in the financial industry. And so we would build all this model, have to centralize a huge amount of data 
and just build those models for different parts of the business, different parts of the company, just to help the whole organization make better decision making. You know, that's... Okay. Are you guys on mute? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was primarily my work. And so, obviously, being a project lead, you had to understand the the data pipeline side of things you had to know understand about data modeling you had to understand data visualization um you had to understand the etl process and data management and all of those processes and so so that's what primarily attracted me to palantir because one of the unique value proposition i would maybe talk more about their competitive advantages and propositions right later on. It's just the fact that Palantir is quite vertically integrated. They have a holistic platform that covers every aspect from data governance, so from literally when you're storing of your data, managing your data, centralizing all of your data from desperate location and bringing it into one centralized location, and then being able to then run your analysis, build models on that and being able to visualize it for a quite variety of stakeholders down to your data governance, your data security, and how do you communicate that data across the whole organization, right? And so there's a huge complexity about how Palantir has actually built the platform. And so so personally, I started actually writing about Palantir since 2019. I said 2019, oh, deep. right after the DPO, so roughly about early November last year. That was my first write-up. And you guys could go on my soft stack on my profile. You could see started writing back then because even right after the DPO, and I don't know how many of you followed Palantir, but there was actually quite a lot of um, skepticism. It was a huge amount of beer. Hey, Francis, we're having some really tough tough time hearing you cutting in and out. Just wanted to no, see Dom, if anyone else was hearing that. I can hear him perfectly fine. I can hear him okay. Yeah, I think it's he's fine. Okay, maybe it was just me. All right, cool. Go ahead. All right. Okay. Yeah, I was just wanted to say, yeah, um, you guys talked about skepticism about Palantir right now, but it was even worse right after the DPO last year. And I think some people still didn't get their heads over the ice issue that happened. Um, and there was just this whole talk about them being primarily government. And there was a lot. And I actually found myself defending Palantir a lot. This was right after the DPO last year. But I think right now it's gotten a lot better. But obviously, I think people just fundamentally need to understand the platform. And trust me, it's not an easy platform if you haven't worked within the data analytics space or the data science industry and you haven't actually built models and actually distributed these kinds of complex platforms, it's going to be difficult. And I think people who just have a difficult wrapping their heads around it just go to the fact that, hey, um, it's probably not the best platform or not. So anyways, that's my whole story with Palantir. Um, but I think as we go through this, um, I'm happy to talk about some of the competitive advantage, what differentiates their platform from other platforms, and why I think Palantir would be one of the biggest winners as data and just AI, just the rise of data continues to flood every industry and company over the next decade. I think they will best position to capture these opportunities, but I'll maybe talk about those much later. But that's my that's my high-level story. I actually think that's a – thanks for sharing that, Francis. I actually think that's a good transition point, if you agree, MM. Um, maybe Gannon and Dom can jump in too to kind of start 
moving the conversation into like, you know, how Palantir differentiates itself. I think you guys have done a lot more DD. Um, I think that'd be a good kind of transition there. What do you think of him? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. So Dom, why don't you go ahead? I know you, uh, you've been, uh, researching Palantir Dom, and wait. you've been posting a lot about it, a lot of great content. And, uh, you know, we've been chatting in our, in our Palantir sort of research area, a lot about the company and both of us are quite excited about it, but I really love hearing what you have to say. So, uh, you know, take it away with, with what Palantir, you know, does to differentiate themselves or competitive moat and so forth. I normally would always jump at this opportunity, but I see we have a guest in here with Tom Nash and quite frankly, I'd love to hear him speak on if he has limited time in the chat. I, I agree. Um, can I, we make good point, Dom. Yeah, no, I, he was a speaker and I think he dropped. Uh, Tom, I invited you to speak uh, if you want to come up. Yeah, Twitter's bugging out right now. Yeah, Twitter. Just and I guess try to for add everyone, if we somehow have a disconnect, we will be up. Like, we'll pump it right back up. So, just in case that does happen, because Twitter is kind of weird with the spaces. And I think we have a good amount of audience, too. Yeah. Um, why will you try to get Tom up here? Um, you know, first off, I want to thank Marks and Mayhem and, and everyone who kind of put this thing together. It would be awesome if, you know, people in the crowd would, would want to share this space, get this space um, pumping and across everyone's Twitter screens right now. So if you want to share the space, that'd be awesome. Hopefully we can get Tom up here sooner than later. Um, I mean, I've been on countless spaces as hosting or speaking and this is nothing new <laughs> when it comes to the problems and the bugs with Twitter spaces. It's actually more rare if you don't have yeah. um, some sort of, some sort of issues. So um, do we want to just get him up here all going while well, he's not, cause I think he left the room. I still see him. So I sent him an invite. I, I see him on there. I sent yeah. an invite to him to speak. So hopefully it works. Um, but Twitter's going to Twitter, you know. Yeah. So, okay. But, well, I'll just jump in, and yeah. as soon as I see him as speaker, I'll stop here. Yeah. Don't um. Yeah. So just taking it to the deep dive level of what drew me to Palantir and and what they're doing so differently. I work in enterprise sales as well, and. One of the big things, as we all know, following SaaS-based companies is it's all about customer obsession and customer retention and expansion. If you can't get a customer to stay with you for a long period of time and really build a moat around those switching costs and have a customer, you know, have a great experience to want to spend more money with you, be a reference, then it's going to be hard to grow at scale. And one of the things that jumped out at me is their business model is so customer focused and customer obsessed around uh, their three prong approach of uh, acquire, expand, and scale. They are willing to lose money their first two phases of the business to make sure that the customer is having a great experience, that they're getting the use case and the ability to get the results that they want to create alpha. And then they find additional use cases within the organizations for different departments, different customizations. And that's where they recoup all of those costs back, those gross profit margins that are so large. And I'd never seen a company in the software business average customer revenue over $5 million. And I think it's even higher than that now. I don't have the statistic in front of me, but 
the fact that they started in the government section uh, and were able to get all the different types of departments there from a security perspective, that is the hardest. And we spoke on this, the previous spaces, that is one of the hardest areas in the world to get uh, large contracts, continuous growth, and just to get in to begin with, to, to be able to play in that range. So the fact that now they have foundry uh, and they have commercial customers who are curious about security and don't want to go to the cloud, the fact that they are level six or level five on the way to level six compliance for the cloud, way ahead of Snowflake, SAP, all these others, it makes it very easy for them to get commercial customers to want to use their product and feel safe that their data is safe there because the Army's using them, the Navy, uh all the CIA, you know, all of these different places. So if they can use them, why can't we trust Palantir? And I think that's a big advantage that will continue to evolve. That was kind of what first drew me to them. And then Alex's comment of a product and software needs to be 10x better for it to stand on its own and to, to, to really grow at scale. And if you've watched them evolve in the commercial space, with all of these different industries, they're not just saying like, hey, we're in 40 industries and not putting the use cases and the testimonies and the ROI examples. Because at the end of the day, selling to enterprise businesses to get a CEO to sign that contract, you have to be able to illustrate that return on investment and do it quickly. Uh, and they have done that and shown that this is not a product that takes a very long time to implement before you get return back. So I'm, I could talk all day about Palantir. I'm going to just stop there and just say their ability to provide return on investment to customers is second to none. And then the second part that's really interesting is their, what uh, their COO talked about uh, in an interview on Weijo, with Weijo, the broader opportunity to invest in companies changing industries and help them accomplish this mission, such as Weijo, Roviant, making them create alpha is the bigger opportunity. So I think the reinvestment with their software being the backbone of these companies and making them leaders in emerging tech, I think that's where we're going to see real exponential growth. I think we have Tom back, by the way. Uh, Tom, if you want to request to speak, I tried inviting you, but I don't know if it's working. Well, I I could talk, um, you know, while while we, uh, oh, looks like we got Tom in. Awesome. No, I I actually need a few minutes to set, to set up my audio sucks right now. Okay, no worries. So, um, you know, I'll I'll give a quick brief rundown of my, you know, relationship with Palantir. So, um, you know, I haven't to to be completely transparent, I haven't been in this stock for a very long time, um. I'm one of these people that likes to I get interested into a company. I do some, you know, preliminary research, um, look over some things. And, and if it intrigues me enough, you know, I'll start a starting position and then continuously add as my due diligence grows. Um, and it's kind of awesome why, you know, all these people are in this space. A lot of these people in this panel have, have been super fundamental and in, in pointing me in the right direction and being able to, um, you know, research Palantir at ease. And that's why I love Twitter. That's why I love YouTube. Uh, Tom, in particular, I mean, I've watched practically every video you've done on Palantir. He's, you know, one of the greatest, in my opinion, one of the best communicators on YouTube, 
when it comes to uh, finance and the stock market, especially when it comes to transparency and, you know, just being no bullshit. This is what I, you know, am looking at. So, you know, for first off, I, I wanted to say that um, a lot of people, there might be people in this space that have no idea what Palantir is. <laughs> and they're just, you know, there's over 300 people in this space right now, which is awesome. And um, I want to say in one sentence what Palantir is. So just hopefully everyone who's just like, what is going on in this space? I, I don't even understand what's going on. Um, Palantir is a company that builds software allowing organizations, private and public businesses, and governments to integrate data, decisions, processes into one platform in an effort to answer complex questions quickly. So what does that mean, right? So imagine you own a business and you have all these logistical problems. Let's say it's a trucking business and you're taking things from one, uh, point A to point B. Palantir, this is obviously a very small scale example, would come to you and they say, hey, pay us and we'll find out all the inefficiencies, all these data points that will you know, make your company so much better that you're going to make so much more money because of us. That is basically Foundry, which is one of their leading products um, and on their commercial business side. They have another product, Gotham, which was the first thing that they started, and that's for the government side. Gotham is more directed towards government, um, CIA, uh, FBI, like U.S. Army stuff, and their data sets aren't necessarily for profits. It's for security, terrorist organizations um, down the line. So that's just like, you know, a quick breakdown. But these are the sectors that all Palantir's clients are in. Government, finance, manufacturing, healthcare, retail, construction, energy, waste solutions, transportation, telecommunications, real estate, entertainment, insurance, legal services, media, and agriculture. And that list just continues to grow by not, you know, a yearly basis. We're talking like a weekly basis. Um, so that's kind of a, a brief breakdown. No, I know Dom kind of spoke about this. Uh, he, he spoke about Weijo. Um, another huge thing that Palantir does is they invest in these other companies, these, you know, startups and SPACs. Uh, just, you know, there's 14 off the top of my head. Uh, Credivo, Adherent, uh, Weijo, Fast Radius. And Weijo is a great example. I'm sorry if I'm butchering the name, but this is kind of a, a vehicle company that is picking up all these data points to make uh, smarter cities, traffic management, advertising, fleet management, and insurance. Um, very interesting company. It's invested by uh, Microsoft and General Motors as well. And there's, you know, there's tons other. So they are growing not only their clients um, that are using Palantir, but they're also growing their investment portfolio. And their investment portfolio is going to help them because they're, it's a strategic partnership. They don't just have equity in these companies, but they're also using them in a specific way to to be able to uh, to make their Palantir platform better. And um, you know, a, an often beginning question that I always hear is like, okay, how did this come about? Right? We all know Peter Thiel started PayPal, and the biggest issue that PayPal had was that they almost went bankrupt when they started, and the reason why was because they created a code to uh, defraud, um, uh, to, to check fraud, right? And the problem is the fraudsters kept figuring out a way to get through the loophole. Over time, Peter Thiel and his team figured out we need some sort of human element. Uh, having a code alone will not protect us. 
So they integrated a human element into being able to identifying, okay, yes, this, this is a clear case of fraud. Um, and, and that changed everything. And those, that basic, um, you know, foundation is kind of what sparked the idea to create a company that then, you know, aggregates data and, and has a human component as well as all these, you know, AI and slash, um, machine learning components to make decisions, probabilities, not just for businesses, but also for governments. Sorry if I talked your ear off. That's kind of just, uh, you know, my opening statement on what I wanted to say about Palantir. No, that's all really great. And I appreciate you sharing. And I know you've put out a lot of good content on your feed about Palantir as well. So thanks for all that, Gannon. And Tom, uh, have you got your sound issues sorted out? One more minute. Okay. Yeah, no worries. And thanks for joining us on here. Really appreciate it. So um, uh, I, I think everyone's gotten a chance to share a little bit about Palantir and kind of, you know, what it may, what makes it uh, an interesting investment to them. We're excited to hear from Tom uh, and we're glad that he joined us on this space as well. I just wanted to also mention something else that's really exciting to me as an investor in Palantir because, you know, look at Foundry, Gotham and Apollo. They're all very exciting. Edge AI is all is quite exciting as well, of course. But Karp hinted, I believe he was in Germany when he said this, uh, that they have three new products that they haven't announced yet. And you just have to take a pause. And, and for a company like this, I mean, every single thing they've put out, I mean, look at Unlock, too. I didn't even mention that. And that's incredibly impressive. Um, the fact that they have three new products they haven't even put out yet. And we already see the excitement and the market's beginning to appreciate, just beginning to appreciate the opportunity and the optionality of Palantir. So I think it's a really interesting time to be an investor in this company because there's so much to look forward to. Now, obviously, there's no certainty and things can go wrong in any kind of you know situation with any company. But for me, I have a pretty strong bullish bias here unless something gives me a reason to change that. And when they start talking about, you know, we've got these new things in the pipeline, you know, one of the things that I saw on Palantir's page, I think it was under their engineering section, I believe it was a quote from Alex Karp himself that basically said, look, you know, we haven't even begun to create all the things we've dreamt up. There's so much more that we want to do. So when they're already talking about that, you know, years ago, then we hear, hey, we've got some stuff in the pipeline. I mean, you have to imagine the runway for this company, given what they've already demonstrated the potential to do, is pretty enormous. And I think that's one of the most exciting parts about being an investor here, because I still feel like, especially, you know, the way I talked about it, where Gotham is sort of the bread and butter, you know, government side of Palantir Foundry and everything that sort of comes with that is more the startup side. And so we can kind of look at parts of this company's initiatives as, as sort of um, having that same sort of S-curve, right? And we're in the earlier part of that S-curve. There's a lot of future potential ahead. And it really has a lot to do with execution. And they've got the best of the best management team. And they're vested into this company's future and have built it. You know, like Rahul said, this company's almost uh, two decades old. They're, they're not a new company, but what they're doing with Foundry is. And so we have tried and true management. We have tried and true software. We have a great brain trust there. And now they're saying, hey, let's take what already works and let's make it work better and help with the digital transformation on the corporate side. Where companies have so much data siloed out to these bespoke solutions that don't talk to each other. 
And what Palantir's Foundry allows them to do is harmonize that, analyze it in real time and execute more efficiently to have what they call alpha, which is really a durable competitive advantage. And what that does over time is it says to companies, hey, you know, if you don't have Foundry, you're going to be losing out, especially if you're in a data intensive industry, whether you're small or large. You know, so that also gives an edge to Palantir because it, with their technology being, I think, five or 10 years ahead of any competition, that tells me that really a lot of other customers are going to say, hey, how are they doing so well over there? Uh, you know, potential customers, I should say, about their competition. Hey, how are they doing so well over there? Why aren't we doing so well? Oh, they're using Foundry. Well, maybe we ought to consider that, you know, because if we don't, we're going to have a durable competitive disadvantage. So um, I just wanted to kind of put that out there. Uh, Tom, I wanted to, to hand the mic over to you if you're uh, if you're in a good spot with your sound. As good as it can be at this point, which is not amazing, but we'll have to win with this. So thank you for, for, for the kind words. I appreciate it. Uh, so I want to start with a little story, not data numbers. So a few weeks ago, I was on a Zoom call with the, some of my patrons. And one of them jumped up and said, hey, listen, I, I build engines for Rolls-Royce. So I'm an engineer. And that's what I do. And everything you're saying about Palantir is nonsense. We already track all this data. All this data already exists. We track every single engine on these all of these data points. And then I told them, precisely. <laughs> that's exactly correct. You track all this data, and you're not the only one. If you, That's the problem. You track all this data, you're the only one who has access to it. The same thing for delays, flight plans, work orders, load sheets, sensor data, across the board, across every single supplier. The data exists, but it doesn't invent data out of thin air. They just take whatever you have available out there in the world and make it into one easily to understand decision-making mechanism. And then he said, ah, shit, now I understand. So that's kind of the aha moment that people uh, in the investment community kind of failed to make. The, the whole idea isn't to reinvent data, it's to actually compile it and make it so it makes sense. Now, I feel... You spoke a lot about Foundry, about Gotham. You can't forget about Skywise. I mean, Skywise, although it's kind of a, it's kind of Foundry in a way. It's a, it's a it's a cousin of Foundry, but I mean, Skywise has already performed phenomenally well in the field. They got over fifty airlines on that uh, on, on on that system, forty five hundred aircraft, uh, uh, over six thousand weekly users active. And multiple airlines, including Boeing airplanes that are sitting on, on the system. Uh, they took Airbus A350 production and just raised it by 33% just by using uh, Skywise. Uh, that's pretty insane for, for a plane. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of unthinkable. Uh, a word that have, I've been using a lot lately. <laughs> but uh, it is. So uh, when you look about it, like a little bit from from 10,000 feet, the way I look at Palantir is basically, as I think about it as, okay, so what's going to be the most disruptive forces in the next three to four to five decades? So and the way I think about it, it has to be renewable energy and it has to be data. Those are the two biggest industries that I can see right now in the market. If we're thinking about the next 50 years, by then I'm assuming, I mean, I'll probably be dead. I mean, some of you may still be alive. <laughs> um, 
So if I, if I stop drinking with grandpa, I might be alive. Let's see. Uh, but uh, here's the thing. With everything today, 2021 already, going online, um, every, every single business is now built on having the most accurate and relevant data. Pretty simple. Uh, so the next phase of you know innovating business intelligence, you know, getting the edge over your competition uh, would come from this area, from your capability to analyze, refine, improve uh, the quality of the data that uh, you're working with. So it's kind of we're on this brink of this new kind of industrial revolution, but from the digital era, from the, from the informational era. And uh, some people miss it, and I find it amusing. It doesn't bother me. Uh, I just find it kind of amusing that people don't see it. Um, because for me, it's quite clear. You know, data is the new oil. <laughs> it's simple. So uh, for Palantir to be sitting on that pipeline of this new oil, pretty much without any serious competition, um, I feel like, uh, you know, somebody uh, just, you know, some people have have what can see it and some people can't see it and that's fine. But um, even some of the arguments I keep hearing right now, uh, they're a little bit ridiculous. I've made multiple videos about the stock-based comp of Alex Carp and how people don't understand how tax works and why he's not really selling out. I've heard multiple arguments, but I mean, they're all nonsense. Um, the thing is, um, Palantir 2021 is pretty much the combination of 17 years of putting every single government dollar to basically put it back into developing a freaking minority report system, <laughs> which can almost predict the future in a way. 17 years of work, every single DOD dollar went back into this company. They've never taken any dividends, none of this stuff, bonuses, whatever. So they talk about Alex's salary. The dude has been working for 17 years. I mean, his salary is literally like a million a year, which is not that high for a $50 billion company CEO founder. Uh, so yeah, he takes most of his comp and stock. I'm fine with it. And the thing for me is, you know, um, I think that um, the thing I like most about Alex, for example, is that he doesn't really try to hype up the stock. If anything, he's aloof about it. He's like, just don't invest. He doesn't really care. So the lack of stock pumping from Palantir themselves um, actually makes me even more confident about how good this company is. So uh, I see this as a, one of the biggest opportunities of our time. Um, and I'm completely comfortable with the pricing. I think uh, if you look at the multiples and you can compare it to actual competitors or at least quasi-competitors like Snowflake, C3 AI, this company is not even expensive today. And without even talking about the potential and the massive upside. So it is what it is. Tom, so you kind of segued into what I was going to ask you real quick. Um, you know, with this company, me and Dom were talking about this earlier, that there's so many bull cases to go around. I mean, it's hard to even even to cover <laughs> all the things with this. And, and this company, you know, kind of like Tesla and, and some other companies has so many X factors, right? And something great about your videos is you, you know, you go through the, through with your audience, your, your valuation metrics and your DCF. Is there anything different uh, when you value Palantir or, or kind of come up with a price target that you have to, you know, look into since there's so many X factors and, and things that are like, you know, so non-traditional about this company? It's a great question, and um, it also kind of 
when you value a company, obviously you don't value Microsoft as you value AMD, right? Or Intel as you value Nvidia. Every single company has a different valuation technique. It depends on the growth, on the maturity of the company, and the projections for the growth. There's a lot of different things. You can hear my son singing in the background. But I mean, specifically with Palantir, I think one of the biggest problems with a lot of the valuations you find in the market right now is that they 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 do these valuations based on the assumption that this is a some sort of a hybrid services company that they they provide actual services and and and, and coming from the services industry myself spending over a decade in the services industry I find it preposterous because the to say to, to say well this is not really a software company it's a service company I have a, I'm looking right now at this document of the onboarding process that they have for Skywise for every airline that wants to onboard it. Um, one to two weeks is onboard kicking off, three to six weeks onboarding ends and you go to services and support. I don't know of any service provider that can onboard you three to six weeks and just say, okay, from here on, on you know, call us if you have a problem. Three to six weeks, mother lover. <laughs> so... When I when I do these valuations, so it's really important to identify which category you're in. And I think a lot of these old school, kind of uh, older generation uh, analysts are, are giving it multiples that are more close to services rather than software. I think that's where they're missing out on the potential. And so if you're doing it, uh, either this year or trying to use a multiple system, you got to do like a, one of those high tech growth software multiples to see the true value of the company, not as a services uh, provider. And if you look at the interview of Alex, like from many years ago, I think it was 2012, he specifically spoke about it. It's like the whole idea, we didn't want to sell services to the DOD. We want to provide a software solution. We don't want to sell services. That's not the point of the company. He said in 2012, when nobody gave a shit about this question. So I don't doubt it for a second. Hey, Tom, this is Dominic here. Uh, wanted to just have you expand on creating alpha because I think with valuation, another thing that you hit on was it all depends on where you're coming from with that valuation. And there are things that you can't put a dollar amount to that will expand uh, when you look at optionality and imagination and you look at all the different SPACs that they've had with Black Sky, uh, with Weijo, uh, and, and the list goes on on these emerging techs. So they also just got John Deere as a customer just recently, which is going to be game changing for farming. Um, c- can you put into words just how you look at that, too, of all the different industries that they touch? And like Skywise, I think Weijo Adept is also kind of using uh, Palantir to, to actually drive their new product. Um, and how that's going to impact them if they're able to help other customers create new products, how that differentiates against other stocks. Yeah, another great question. Uh, nice, nice funny chat with you, Dom. Uh, we've only been tweeting back at each other. Uh, so, uh, this you know, the slogan of, all, of most of these Palantir doubters and haters uh, is that uh, this is not a profitable company. How can you give it such high like uh, growth projections, profit projections? I mean, they don't understand that not being profitable uh, is actually a good sign. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bonus. Uh, you're taking a company here that doesn't prioritize taking profit, but instead, you know, reinvests everything back into engineering. Well, a little bit of Salesforce now, but I mean, mainly engineering. Uh, even these stock-based comp that they're biatching about, 
uh, you know, 2.5 billion last year, I think it was, or whatever it was. I mean, it's actually an investment in your business. They don't understand what stock-based comp does. When you turn an employee into a shareholder, you actually retain that employee, which is good, and you basically get better results from that employee. It's it's kind of, it's an investment, so it's definitely a misunderstanding. So. Uh, Did we lose Tom there? Yeah, I can't hear him. Shows that he's on mute right now. Hey Tom, if you can still hear us, it looks like your mic's muted. Uh, if you had anything to add in there, uh, you're you're welcome to weigh in. Uh, otherwise, we can continue the conversation here about, you know, how Palantir's uh, able to build a more competitive advantage and how that's durable. But it looks looks like Tom's unmuted, so go ahead, Tom. Sorry. No, no, I, I had no a phone call, which is horrible. They don't let you choose what you want to prioritize, the call or the this thing. So it just automatically decides for you. I love that paternalistic approach. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so beautiful. Um, so you're looking at, so when Dom was asking a question, well, how do you quantify all of this immense potential, right? It's a tough thing to do. It's not easy to do, obviously. Uh, but here's how I look at it. This is an industry agnostic company. You can put it in a tractor. You can put it in the toilet fixing company. You can put it in the in the fire department in your municipality. You can literally put it anywhere, in an airline, in a, in a Taliban organization <laughs> to make more efficient terrorists. I mean, you can, I'm just kidding, of course. I'm just kidding, Twitter world. Uh, but uh, obviously, God forbid. But I'm saying uh, you can put it anywhere and it's going to, improve exponentially how you do business. Uh, it's it's done that for the government and it's doing it now in the commercial sector for the past few years. And the test cases coming out just out of Skywise that I saw are mind blowing. So the way I quantify it is basically, here's how I look at it. So right now, I think they're lowballing future growth just to beat it. That's how I think about it, Dom. So I'm, I'm looking at, okay, so this is the next big industry. And these guys are basically the Michael Schumacher of this industry. They're leading, but nobody can touch them. So do I really think it's a 40% per year annual growth company? I don't think so. I think they're lowballing. I think it's it's definitely not a 40% straight line five-year growth. I, I have my own theories about it, but you know I've, I've named the 25X before <laughs> and people laughed at me. It's getting harder to laugh at it now that it's kind of starting to catch up with the numbers. But on, even if you go on a conservative on a conservative approach and you just give it a CrowdStrike numbers, right? just just use CrowdStrike multiples on Palantir and see what kind of valuation you get. And now answer the simple question: Is CrowdStrike more upside heavy or Palantir is? And I, that would be your very easy answer to see where the valuation should be right now. And Tom, don't you think like because there's so much universalism with this product? It seems like a lot of analysts and other people don't take the time to do the DD. Like, I, I hate when people say, I don't understand Palantir. Well, did you go to their website? Did you look at their ex explanation on the, the on the ontology and what their software is trying to do? Basically, operationalizing decision-making. Time is money. Like, I just, I don't understand why people find it so hard to understand this company. Well, it's not the first time we see laziness in Wall Street and uh, in mainstream media, Dom, to be honest. 
I mean, they've been doing it for years. They just regurgitate the same stuff. Fair. But I mean, what what do you think? I, I'd love to hear your input on this. Uh, mainstream media bias? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of a lot of political ties too. You know, you wonder what uh, it, 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 someone made a comment on Twitter just recently. I think it's one of the panels actually around how Jim Cramer all of a sudden says, "Oh, Palantir's a buy. It's a great company," and I thought it was hilarious. We we're all laughing because literally it was like a couple weeks ago he was like, "Oh, they're a black box. I I don't even have their earnings report. Like I don't even know what they did." You know, and so I don't know if it's because they also didn't go through a standard IPO process that Wall Street kind of you know, doesn't favor them. And also Alex is very contrarian to uh, your standard CEO. Um, But I think as you hinted, we will continue to see the use cases grow and the actual uh, investments of their products, making other companies better. And it will become to a point of, if you're not using Palantir, then you may get left behind. And I think also there's a lot of companies that don't want to tell us they're using Palantir because they don't want to have their competitors using Palantir. They want that alpha as long as they can. Well, think about it this way, Dom. If you're, I'm not singling out Jim, but you, if you have to know everything about every single stock ticker out there, so you can spew a sentence on, on, a, on a minute's notice, that doesn't really give you a lot of time to dive deep into this. So that's kind of the mainstream media really have, a tough time objectively dealing with uh, growth and disruptiveness. In general, they have a tough time with it. Um, it's like, you remember Adam Jonas, from I think from Goldman Sachs, and how he was talking about Tesla and now how he's talking about Tesla now. It takes him a little while to kind of understand that this is disruptive because for the most part, nine out of ten times, when somebody comes in and says, hey, I have this life-changing device, or technology, it's usually bullshit. I mean, it's usually a Theranos or a Nikola. That's why it's, it's they so doubtful about it. Um, but unlike these and the other names I just dropped, this company specifically has already delivered 17 years of results, even before the DPO. And by the way, a DPO is a much more fair process to the everyday retail investor than an IPO or a SPAC. In both of these other systems, the retail investors get screwed. A DPO is the only way to allow a fair, even play for retail investors versus institutionals. So that alone earns them a lot of credit. And so for me, it's quite simple. It, it, it's a combination. It takes them a little while to get it to get used to the idea that this is not some sort of a hot air balloon vaporware. And obviously, as you mentioned. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, I would say, people tend to politicize stuff that should not be politicized. Uh, yes, they have what you would say, they have very strict opinions, both Peter and Alex. They're very open about their own personal opinions. But this is not a political issue. And a lot of this, the, the, a lot of this political issues get dragged into the discussion about this company unfairly because at the end of the day it's a company that will take your numbers it will spew out whatever it is you need to know to make better decisions simple it has nothing to do with politics it doesn't care who's president which country it's just irrelevant 
and but because of Peter's opinion, because of Alex's opinion, and because you know he speaks German, he speaks French, and like <laughs> they, they they don't like they they're haters. <laughs> it is what it is. Something uh, to to note about that too is just like they don't give a shit if we know about them or not. Um, <laughs> quite frankly, um, and I and I can kind of speak for this a little bit too. I mean, I work. I work in the government. I work for the government. Um, I'm in the Naval Reserve, and um, I also have a commercial job that works contracted with the government. And you know, like I don't think Palantir. I think everyone. I think they. You know, they got this rap of being this. You know, ultra secret. You know, company. Um, do they do things that we will likely never know? A hundred percent, of course. You know. Um, that, but that's any type of company that has the government as a client. I mean, it could literally even be, you know, Cisco, like, um, grocery delivering. It doesn't matter what it is when your client is the government, you don't talk about what you do with the government. Um, that's nothing new. That's never going to change. Um, so, you know, that kind of got shrouded in and through people's confusion on that aspect, and they hear the word data and they connected data and then they start talking about the NSA and then they go down this rabbit hole of their, you know, uh, Palantir spying on us and yada, yada, yada. That's, you know, a huge um, bear case that I hear. Another one is like, oh, it's immoral to, to invest in Palantir. Again, uh, Tom and, and multiple people have said it, they don't create the data. They don't create the data. It doesn't come out. They're evaluating the data. Um, and it's, you know, with Weijo, for example, you know, they invest in that company. Weijo, all the data they get is from people who have signed up. They're not going around and stealing data um, without people knowing it. Um, they've been very, very careful and cautious about this to, to try to turn that narrative around, which is good. You know, as a company, you should, you know, steer the narrative out of those waters um but you know you know kind of going back to um you know carp and teal and their personalities kathy wood i was watching a video the other day talking about how you know this is a company that um they're in their own lane if you are going to invest in palantir um not if, if you know financial advice this is just you know my opinion and kathy wood's opinion um, you better be in it for the long haul, and that and, and they don't care. They 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 don't care about you know your little portfolio and you wanting to make a you know a twenty percent year. This is a company for the long haul, and you have to you know do your research and um, see their vision because their vision is you know not within the next five months or the next eight months. Their vision is a is a twenty year vision in my opinion or longer. And by the way, if you look at the way the mechanics of Skywise work, for, for example, like they have a different, you actually as a client, you get two folders, which you get to decide which information they're allowed to share with other airlines and other, for the purpose of, you know, improving everybody else's data and what they can't use. So in fact, they have a completely contrarian approach to getting your data without your permission. That's why they are so, I mean, they're beef with Silicon Valley pretty much. So they they definitely don't don't have any infringement on privacy issues, even from a moral standpoint. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Uh, I I feel like 
it's a it's an urban legend like you mentioned and it's just total nonsense so the, the second half of what you said i couldn't agree more so people well what's a good entry point tom what what's a good entry point what the hell are you talking about what what does it mean what does it matter if you're investing in a company which you believe is going to 10x which i personally do it's my opinion might be wrong might be right who gives a shit right but if you're investing if you believe this is going to 10x what the hell is your entry point relevant? If it's 28, 29, 24, 35, or 40, it's completely irrelevant. So I think people get caught up with these day trading, uh, swing trading mechanics, and uh, it's not, and they get caught up in this, uh, uh, they, and they find themselves in this long-term investment, and they just can't uh, wrap their hands around it. Oh, so uh, where's, where's my money? Where's my money? So they struggle with it so much out of the, you know, this, this day trader, swing trader mentality. And that, I've, I've said it multiple times in my videos before. If you, if you don't have that long-term horizon, it's probably not a good stock for you. Like objectively, not because I'm trying to put people down. If, if this is your last money and in that 20% per year, I mean, you just put it in SP 500. It's going to do 20% a year, probably in the next year. And you don't need Palantir. I mean, the only, it's, it's a very long-term play. And I think, I would be really interested to see which percentage of uh, retail investors are uh, real long-term ones and which are, you know, swing traders, day traders, just therefore the right. Um, that would be a really interesting breakdown because I think they taint a lot of the of the water of the discussion about it. Um, but I don't hate on them. I just think that they're in the wrong stock. Um, it's 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 a uh, it, it, it's kind of obvious to see. It, the, the thing uh, about about this stock for me is, is very, very simple. I don't go deep into numbers on the, uh, on this level. I just look at it this way. As far as government goes, they're about to go to level six, right? No competition on level six. As far as the civilian market goes, what they did with Skywise and Airbus is unrivaled. Uh, and as far as what they're doing right now in every other industry you can think of, automotive, you mentioned agriculture. There's a gazillion different industries, unrivaled. Nobody else does that. Some claim they do. Some they play. You know, there's a lot of cloud chasing, a lot of claims, and maybe they lose a client or two. Maybe they lose a partnership or two. But at the end of the day, in ten years, um, like I think Carp said, you when you do your CV, it has to say well, Ward, PowerPoint, and Palantir, pretty much. This is going to be a must must know a system to use and pretty much for anybody looking for a job in the next decade. So for me, it makes it very simple to invest. But then again, I mean, what do I know? I'm just a YouTuber. <laughs> I just want to echo a few things that Tom has mentioned in this call. Um, I think, and I think where I kind of go with is where you talked about them sandbagging the growth rates. Um, over the next, the compounded group rate for the next five to six years or seven years or whatever. Um, I know they gave that guidance of a 30% compounded annual growth between now and 2025 or 2024, somewhere about that. And I totally believe it's definitely, um, it's a very conservative number because if you guys have been following the earnings quite over the last couple of quarters, you guys would notice a huge acceleration in their remaining purchase obligations. So yeah, the RPOs. And so these are just deals that they've potentially signed with potential companies, but they haven't quite recognized the revenue yet on their income statement. 
they also have a quite amount of total deal value. And if you guys notice the last two quarters, there's been huge accelerations in those contracts and new deals that they've signed. And the good thing about those deals are you don't see those on the income statement right away in this quarter. Like those are huge deals that you're going to be seeing over the next few years. So I think they already have close to $3.64 billion as of this was as of last Q2's earnings call. And when you actually, if you wanted to break that out over the next few years, you can't imagine how much growth that is in the company, you know? So kind of going back to, um, um, Tom's point about even maybe a 40% growth might be quite modest over the next few years. I think that is not unrealistic to imagine with this company, right? Like they're not putting all this upfront growth as like a snowflakes where you could actually see it on the income sense, like, wow, it's growing over a hundred percent. They're actually playing this on a more long-term basis. And over time, those deals would be recognized in the income statement and those growth rates will absolutely start growing. You know, and I and I think you guys have seen this. I follow quite institutional um investors. I, I follow that's that's one of my metrics personally for investing. So what are some of the highest quality fund managers doing? And I think between Q1 and Q2 of this year, um, the funds, the total amount of funds that were in Palantir stock was about 196, somewhere early into this year. And the last time I checked on Friday, it was about 516, right? And so, obviously, that's why the stock has been moving like crazy. But I think what's been happening and why you had like this over 300% or 200% growth in a number of institutions that are now flocking was they needed to see some kind of a confidence on what Palantir could provide, right? And so that's why you had such a low number of funds getting in. And right now, it's it's off the roof, over five. That's now among some of the most elite stocks out there in terms of how many funds and institutions are in it, you know? And I think those deal and contract values and RPO deals that you guys have been seeing over the last few quarters, as well as the new partnerships that they've been signing as well and investments are gradually showing to investors that these guys know what the future looks like and how much growth is in the future. And so if you really know why you're investing in Palantir, you wouldn't worry too much about stock-based compensation. Personally, too, I, I always just see that as noise in my own opinion, um, stock-based compensation or the profitability, because you would see actually a huge amount of those once those deals start getting into the balance sheet and so and the income statement gradually over time you would gradually see the company achieve that operating leverage and the stock-based compensation become less of a deal over time as the as the company grows you know so so i i kind of back what tom and everyone's kind of mentioned early on is i think these guys are quite visionary they're quite extremely long-term about the way they think um, like this, Alex Kopp is a philosopher, right? I, I don't know if you guys got to listen to Joe Lonsdale's um, podcast a few weeks ago where he talked about just um, Palantir and the founding days of Palantir. But this guy's a philosopher and a huge Peter Thiel. Like if you guys know about Thiel, who's still the chairman, like this guy's thinking decades, like this guy's thinking long, long term, right? Like they're not like you and they're not your non-traditional they don't care about the quarterly result they don't give a damn about anyone like you guys know from alex right and so 
if you want to be an investor, yeah, I mean, you just have to think about the really, really long term, and um, yeah, you just have to think about the long term with this company. I think that's that's the deal with this company. One last thing, that, and just because I have to leave in like ten minutes, yeah, I just wanted to just kind of wrap up my own. I guess what I'm most excited about with this company and maybe a few things that I'm a little bit cautious, even though I'm extremely bullish and I've written quite a few articles here on Seeking Alpha and I'm currently working on a new one right now. I think apart from the SPAC investments that you guys have mentioned, I think those are great. Those are fascinating. But I think the next, the future of Palantir and where the huge growth is going to come is actually from the enterprise side of things because um, the government on the government side, we know they're the core Palantir today is a core operating system for the US government, the US Army, and the military in general, right? Like we talked I think Tom someone already talked about them being at that level six already. Um and their the software is just entirely so they've almost conquered if you want to take they've conquered the entire market, the government side of the U.S. government, right? And actually, if you guys follow Palantir internationally, they're doing some work with the U.K. health services, right? They're doing some work with the Japanese governments too, right? And so on the government side of things, we know Palantir is like the core system, right? Like, And so that's like a few they've conquered. But the huge aspect and where Palantir's growth is going to come over the next, and if the stock is going to 10x or do whatever it wants to do over the next few years, a huge part of that is going to come from the enterprise. And and that's where they, they, they're executing well, but in my own opinion, they still need to do more. They need to prove a little bit more on that enterprise side of things. And so I think and I think what you guys have been seeing, you guys saw the data robots um, announcement that was done and early on this year. And if you guys don't know about data robots, it's, it's an advanced AI company. It's currently on the private market, but extremely advanced AI integration company, but they had like this huge partnership with Palantir where they're creating demand forecasting models. And so what that essentially just means is for companies that are trying, maybe in the retail sector primarily, if you're trying to forecast what your demand would look like over the next couple of years, and you have this huge billion sets of data, you have the capability of using actually this platform. They had this partnership with them. And we should not forget IBM's partnership early on this year, right? That IBM has huge amount of customers through their cloud business. That also allows Palantir to have huge integrations with other partners across the tech ecosystem. So I think those are partnerships that I'm quite excited about and to see how those grow over time. Because one of the biggest challenges with Palantir, to be honest, is they don't integrate with many companies, right? There's, there's a low amount of system integrators. And and to be honest, that's something that has slowed down their private sector growth just because, number one, they don't they have disagreements with quite a variety of companies out there on like Snowflakes. I don't I don't know how good I don't know everyone knows they hate Google. They're not in good terms with Google. Um I don't know so much about Microsoft Snowflakes, I don't think so. A lot of the Silicon Valley companies are at odds with Palantir, and you guys kind of know this. And but where that also it's been affecting Palantir on the enterprise side of things because companies that are looking to implement their platform, Palantir's platform, can't easily 
it access all the because every other company is using like 100 different software systems right and so if you wanted to bring palantir into your company you need to ensure palantir system could work could talk communicate with those variety of other systems you know so that's an area where i'm a little bit cautious with palantir and i'm kind of watching to see how well they could improve their ecosystem their system integrator partners because that's going to be a huge part of how they accelerate their growth within of the enterprise and i think the final part where i'm really excited about is it's just the age ai capabilities right and i think i'm writing on this and i'll expand more on this i can't do that on this call but it's this whole notion of and you guys know one of the thesis with um cloudflare for anyone who knows cloudflare or fastly is this whole edge platform right but where palantir is taking this onto is combining the power of the edge plus ai capabilities right and so when you when you're bringing in the edge and ai capabilities you could run this micro models or sensors in a wide variety of like your potential your potentials of ai just exponential right you don't have to worry about just running your ai in your own core business but you could actually run those same model machine learning models and quite a variety of different spaces it just expands the potential of a company and and this is something they're quite excited about and this is something that has huge potential within the enterprise side of of palantir's business and i think the and and then finally i think the big thing with palantir is just the fact that um they're building palantir for builders you guys probably heard about that right where they're making it more easily accessible for small businesses to actually um build easily on foundry you know so so i think anyways in just kind of wrap up my piece here just before i leave the the spaces here it's just with palantir i think the big modes the big goal is they've conquered the government now within the enterprise side of things they have so many partnerships they're doing the edge ai capabilities modularization of foundry um and we're beginning to see how this is infatuated so many different industries and so this is some of my biggest things i'm quite excited about um and yeah when my article is released i'll publish that for everyone um again but thanks to everyone for hosting this call um again um i have to run right now uh but this is great um and i think i've learned a lot from everyone on here so thank you francis thank you for all your writing and contributions on the fintwit community too for uh palantir Wanted to just comment on uh, something you said about builders, too. I know that Jackson from I Am Palantir Vision is not able to make it, I don't think, right now. But he did interview the COO, Sankar, um, and on the his YouTube video of the comments from that interview with him was uh, Palantir for Builders it does not require a full-time deployed engineer at all. So the idea of builders and that will roll out moving forward too, to your point is this is no code or low code uh, and does not require an engineer to use this product. So I think that's maybe something that will also fuel this commercial growth. Totally. I would also just wanted to thank you, Francis, for participating as a host today. Uh, enjoyed everything you added, and uh, you have a lot of wonderful insights you share with FinTwit. So I want to double down on what Dom said as well. Uh, appreciate all the content you share, and uh, you know, keep it going, my friend. Excellent work. 
Thanks a lot, Francis. Appreciate everything you're doing, man. I have one little thing I want to say um, about Palantir's moat. I think that's kind of a good segue. Um, Francis, again, thank you. I think you already left, though. But, um, you know, just at a very, very, very basic level, sometimes, you know, for me, when it comes to understanding more complex companies, I, I just try to figure out, you know, how, how do I boil this down um, as simply as possible and then communicate it to my audience? But if I'm, you know, a company and I'm making $100 per week and Palantir comes to me and says, hey, if you pay us $20, we'll make you $130 a week. And so $10 more profit, I would say, of course, that sounds great. So I signed up with Palantir and before you know it, I'm making $130, but I'm paying them, you know, $20. So now I'm making 110 overall. Um, and over time, as that relationship grows, the more, um, interactions and the more data that they can connect, um, about what I do, that 130, uh, that $110 turns into $200, you know, um, as like the example with, with the airline industry, I think, I believe Tom said somewhere of like a 33%. Which is an absolutely incredible. I mean, we, we know that the airline industry is like notoriously one of the worst industries when it comes to, um, you know, profits per se. Uh, it's just it's just a horrible industry. Um, so to be able to do whatever they did in that industry, whether it's probably a lot of it is cutting down costs, um, having more efficient um, logistics and such like that, you know, that is so sticky. I mean, that is. That it's unbelievably sticky, and to, to be able to know that, oh wow, every it seems like every single year our relationship with Palantir has only made us more, you know, more profitable. So um, it's not just like this one-time thing where they come in, uh, you know, they figure everything out, and then they say, okay, well, see you guys. You know, Palantir is a continuous. Uh, it scales on itself. The software gets smarter. It's like the, you know, the classic like Incredibles robot that like literally the more you fight it, um, the the smarter it gets. I know that's kind of a weird, uh, you know, example, but, you know, that's just something I wanted to point out. And I think that ties in like directly into like their sales model. Like if you have the acquire, expand, scale phase, it's basically um, no risk for the, like the uh, customer themselves to actually try to incorporate um, Palantir software with all their business processes. And like, since they're so heavily focused on AI and machine learning, um, you're not going to see the actual value of that until you've been with Palantir software for months and months on end. Um, like the more data points those like ML and AI models get, the better they're going to perform and the more value you're going to actually see from them. So um, I think... Palantir's sales model, it aligns perfectly with what their software is capable of. And I don't think analysts have taken the time to uh, properly understand that or incorporate that within their actual, you know, valuation models. 
I agree. I, I think another thing that's important in, in, in what you're mentioning and really what the conversation is talking about with regards to a sort of misunderstanding versus the actual or at least perceived mode here, uh, you know, by folks who have really dug deep into this, like, uh, you know, everyone here who's on the panel has spent some time really digging into Palantir and, and get a better understanding of what maybe the narrative is. And I think, you know, just going back to the, the idea of an S-curve, you know, Foundry is in its early, early stages. You know, Palantir has been around for a while, but Foundry is a new part of it. And it really does need to be looked at as if it's a startup. And so if we look at that and then we look at how this is manifested from the early stages, it was very human intensive. You know, it took more engineers to really stand it up. It took a, a longer period of time to stand it up. So there's more friction. There is more operational cost. And then as we move forward, we see you know, those are melting away. Apollo is able to automate and orchestrate deployment, maintenance, uh, support and troubleshooting. So there's less engineers needed. It's also compressing that timeline. So, you know, rather than seeing like a year plus, it can go down to, you know, months and eventually even weeks and days. And you'll have, you know, the combination of improved efficiency. But what's really important about that is reducing friction. Because you want to be able to get this product in, you know, you want to be able to have the customer use it, you want to be able to have them uh, start to gain some value as early on in that post-sale cycle as possible. That improves uh, stickiness, you know, it also improves the ability for the customer to realize alpha as they're, you know, as they're really starting to use the product right after they've had that kind of sales meeting where they decided, hey, we're going to use it. So, you know, it, it's, it's still fresh in their minds. And that's all very important, the sort of psychology of this and, and it growing over time. But the other thing that I think it's really extraordinary to look at is here's a company that can take data, no matter what format it's in. It could be proprietary. It can be a legacy system that nothing talks to. And they can harvest that data. They can convert it into human-readable objects like what Unlock does. But what Foundry does is a whole other level of that. It can take data from all sorts of disparate silos, and it can aggregate it and analyze it and provide actionable insights for better execution in real time or near real time. There's really nothing like that out there that applies to so many different vertical use cases and, and so that's another significant competitive advantage because what Palantir is doing is saying, hey, look, we recognize our value in the enterprise, but we think we can actually add alpha to business use cases, you know, that are that are of all sizes and in even different differentiated industries than where we are now. And the reason that that's important is, A, it opens up their total addressable market and expands their runway as a company. And it gets closer to that idea of what Tom's saying, where, hey, this could be, you know, a 10Xer. And I agree. Uh, but it has to show us that path. And this is part of those breadcrumbs kind of leading us down that path, right? Because if they're able to get into the SMB space as well as the enterprise space and really start to accumulate a strong customer base. And remember, they have a very low penetration rate. So the, the ability for them to expand into these total addressable markets, it, it's pretty significant. It's really about execution. It's really about building out those use cases. It's about demonstrating the value that they have for their clients. So one of the things that you see as a Palantir investor is, oh, on their latest earnings, their sales and marketing expenses are going up. And so same with the previous quarter. And some people get a little concerned about that. I would say, actually, you should be excited about that as an investor. You want them to be going out there and getting people really involved with the decision-making process as they enter the digital transformation period for their business, whether it's a large enterprise or a legacy company with a lot of data and different silos or even a startup, everyone needs to know that Foundry exists. This is, this is transformational, but it's also something that most people aren't really aware of. And so that's really, really important for Palantir in their growth trajectory 
to be able to get out there and that sort of, again, going back to the S curve, you kind of imagine an S that's, that's sort of turned horizontally, right? You know, you have some dips, you have some disappointments, you have some challenges, and that's what we had earlier this year, you know, when the stock, uh, you know, had a lot of sort of uh, uh, froth built up, there was a lot of excitement, but the earnings didn't quite match the excitement in that first release that they had in the stock didn't necessarily perform well from there. But then after that May quarter came out, you know, we saw that people sold it off and then aggressively accumulated. And we've been on a kind of a, a little bit of an uptrend since there, right? A low of 17, a high of 29 and change. So that's a, that's a pretty good uh, run that Palantir's had from a technical perspective. It's still very strong. Um, it's over that 27 to 27.50 sort of resistance or consolidation area that's now become support. And when we saw a little bit of selling into Friday's close, I'm not worried about it. Longer term, the stock is in good shape, but more importantly, the company is in good shape. And they're starting to demonstrate the roadmap that they have moving forward. Now, for us as investors, the more they start to talk about, hey, we're spending money, but we're doing it to improve the time frame from which we can scale. They're basically, you know, what they're doing with sales and marketing, I've heard their ads, I've seen their videos, everything is really well produced, it's really high grade, it's professional content, and it's stuff that would be impressive to decision makers of businesses small and large, and it's also content that distills what Palantir does in sound bites and in video formats that allow people in different industries to absorb it and say, hey, this is how this relates to my business use case, maybe I'll consider giving this platform a try. And remember also, uh, Unlock is something that Palantir, you know, put out, I think it was maybe five, six months ago to, and this doesn't even cost customers any money. You sign up, they, they allow you to upload these, um, you know, sort of esoteric proprietary data objects, things from legacy systems, things that might be tied up into old computers that you can't access other than just directly or, you know, over a network, but it doesn't tie into any other system. So they don't talk. And they allowed that to be dumped out into human readable objects. It could be imported into any open source database format. Now consider that as just sort of like a very small part of the value that Foundry adds, because a lot of businesses struggle with just that part right there, you know, just getting the data out of that proprietary silo and into some format that is usable. Palantir is like, hey, we're so good at that. We're gonna do that for free just to show you the value of what we can add and how we can tie this all together. So I wanna just pause there, let others add their thoughts in. But I think that one of the things that really excites me about this company is the optionality. Not only the runway that they built that I talked about, not only that they really seem to be executing on all cylinders, not only that they're misunderstood, because to me as a contrarian investor, that just means there's more people that need to get on board and will once they see Palantir prove it in their own mind. In my mind, they really have. But it's also because what we see is one of the best in breed management teams. And they're not just building this company, um, you know, from the idea of, we're going to execute on Foundry and we're going to execute on Gotham and, and Apollo is going to complement the both of those platforms. They're going to build new products, new services. And this is also a management team where both of them have investment experience, venture capital experience, and they're taking Palantir and turning it into an incubator for smaller companies that can become a part of Palantir's growth and challenge Foundry to expand its optionality into other platforms and other verticals. So it's really just exciting on so many fronts. So um, I'd love to just open it up for anyone else that's a host to, to just kind of take it from there. Yeah, I, I would just like to say uh, to your point, uh, MM, it, the, all the different CEOs that have made partnerships and started using uh, Palantir, 
have given rave, rave reviews, right? And, and you hit on the making data usable. And Tom was talking about how they are allowing companies to operationalize their data for alpha and profit. And so you look at Ad Therent, their CEO, Jim Lawson, he made this comment about partnering uh, with Palantir. Uh, he says, we're extremely excited about Palantir's investment and their belief in our long-term vision for our business. A partnership between these two companies will help make us have data more efficient for our customers. Partnering with Palantir also helps us identify data insights quickly and find relationships between our data. So I know Tom mentioned that, uh, you know, data is the new oil, and I 100% agree with that take. And, and so what I look at uh, Palantir as is sort of the, you know, the, the extractor and refiner of that oil. When you look at a barrel of oil, you know, it turns into all these different products, and they all have different use cases. But essentially what Palantir is doing is saying, hey, you've got an abundance of this, and you're not really using it well. And, you know, think about, like, the, uh, the U.S. before we actually started to really have that hydrocarbon energy revolution. And there was a lot of people in the dark. There was limited power. There was limited scale for all this industry. And then they unlocked the power of hydrocarbon energy and everything changed. The same thing is true with Palantir and unlocking the power of data, right? We know data is one of the most valuable commodities on Earth. But what is really being realized with Gotham and now Foundry is that the data only really has value when you can understand it and execute on it. And if you're not able to take all of the data in some total, see it and, and frame it up in a way where you're actually interpreting it constructively and able to make, you know, important management decisions based off of that data, uh, or in some cases, even automate off that data. You know, you can say, hey, in Foundry, we're going to do this low-code app. We're going to say, hey, if these solar panels detect that the sun is actually, you know, changing its direction from when they can optimally get enough energy, we're going to pivot them. So we get it from the angle where we'll get the most energy and we're going to use foundry to optimize that or the same thing for wind turbines or other kinds of energy production. You see that as a use case where it's automation where foundry is providing those real-time insights, but it's allowing a sort of AI to act on that. So you take even the human element out of the equation and improve operational efficiency. So th this is a platform where I think what really makes it very fascinating for me is it's not just software. You know, we talk about SaaS a lot. We talk about software as a service a lot. And that's one of the biggest industries. It's had the most growth. It's a very exciting area. And I don't want to discount it at all. I still think there's incredible opportunities in SaaS. But what Palantir is, is it's a platform as a service. So imagine the layer under the software. And that's what Family Foundry even hits at that foundation, right? Foundry, like the layer underneath. So they're allowing companies, and, and even with their own internal modules, they're even providing right out of the box, the ability to scale your data analysis and execution and automation. And it goes to all different industries. I mean, you know, Tom talked about airlines. We've talked about, you know, uh, energy a little bit. We've talked about some other industries that are data heavy. But really one of the most fascinating things about this is it can be an accelerator for data of all kinds. I mean, you talk about uh, – um, research into genetics, research into biology, research into creating new pharmaceuticals, cures, curative medicine, cellular therapies. Foundry can be used as an accelerator for all of that. It can really help to improve parts of the human condition. You know, you can have uh, uh, the ability to also, like we saw with COVID, hey, we need to get a response out. We need to make sure that we can distribute vaccines as quickly as we can. Well, what happened in the U.S. and the U.K. where they used Foundry 
to distribute those vaccines. They had the best logistics of any countries on earth. And, and it was for, you know, especially in the U.S., you've got a lot of geographic distribution. You've got high population, low population zones. You've got a lot of potential bottlenecks. And yet they did an incredible job. So you look at all these applications that are sort of outside the core of what we might think of for Palantir, and that optionality is only in its early iterations. It's only in the early part of that startup time to not only be an investor, but just to be a technologist watching technology. So, MM, um, I have a quick kind of question for, you know, kind of going around the horn here. Um, everyone. Everyone on this floor has done, you know, significant research into Palantir. Um, and as as investors, we all know, you know, we can't fall, fall in love with any stock. Um, at least that's my ideology. I never fall in love with any stock or any company because, quite frankly, they don't love me. So, you know, what, what as anyone who's listening in this crowd, what do you suggest are some points, the key indicators that this company is not performing in the future all the things that we are talking about today. I think it's very important, um, as I think everyone in this space, uh, uh, speaking in this space, is, you know, we're big believers in know why you own something. Know, uh, know why you own it and know when to sell, when to buy. Um, so what would, I guess, kind of like make you start to become – uh, what would change your why per se? So for me, for instance, like the, the biggest thing that I can point to, and this is kind of something that I'm continuously researching on, um, you know, is I, I researched the bear case on, on all of my positions because I want to know uh, what could go wrong. For me, it would just be a significant loss in clients, um, particularly government clients that would start to make me, you know, start to decide, uh, maybe make a decision. So uh, I would love to hear other people's um, thought process on, you know, what would make this company uh, something that you, you, you might, you know, change your thoughts about. That might help others in this space uh, be able to monitor it in the future. I mean, I can start off real quick and then we can kind of just go around. Um, I think there's a few things. I think the point you brought up about, um, you know, losing clients is spot on. I would say there's a few things I would kind of be uh, concerned of, or I would at least look at carefully if I saw happening. One is in the past, I think eight, nine months, as Emma mentioned earlier, we've seen this huge consolidation and basing. And what that also has been is accumulation of institutional buying, right? I think they're up to close to a thousand uh, institutions kind of bought in um, and well over what that was last year. So if I saw institutions kind of, you know, exiting those positions, that would definitely be a red flag because I want to see, like, you don't want to follow the money, but that's also what kind of helps make a market, right? So you want to understand, like, if institutions leaving, why are they leaving? Um, and secondly, another big thing would be is, like, they're priced reasonable right now. I wouldn't say it's, like, the best sales ratio, but you're pricing it based on growth, right? So if you start missing those estimates, um, I think that's another big thing, right? Like, if the company starts doesn't execute the way that you know we want them to execute um which i think is for many growth stocks right you don't want to see them missing estimates or sandbagging and missing on that or vice versa you know you just don't want to see kind of that lack of uh consistency in their growth um unless there's a 
strong reason. For example, last year, of course, COVID came and affected companies. So um, that and also just like, um, you know, just making sure that they keep up with what they're saying. So, um, you know, not false promising things or saying one thing and another thing happens. So, um, you know, one big thing for me, a pet peeve I have is I really like listening to CEOs and management speak when they speak publicly. Um, and this is not just when they come on CNBC or something, but I, I like to pick up on you know, private interviews or, you know, other media publications that they're speaking to. I just like following what they're saying and seeing how they kind of keep up with that. Um, so yeah, those, those are definitely things for me. Or if, you, or if you see management change, for example, you know, if a CEO steps down, well, what's going on, right? You want to understand. Uh, a lot of people, I think, do enjoy investing in founder-led companies and I know the Twitter space is just cut off in the middle of the recording, and this is because it crashed on us that night. We are still trying to get the other audio clip from Twitter, but hopefully these first 90 minutes gave you more insights on how some of the Palantir investing community view the stock and view the company in the present and for the future. Also wanted to give a shout out to my friend Raul, who I didn't mention in the intro because I'm not sure if he would call himself an avid follower of Palantir just yet. Uh, he is one of the speakers that were on the recording as well. And you can follow him on Twitter at Rembrajani9. And please want to remember that. One, two, three. Now for our disclaimer. Dominating your investment should not be seen or heard as financial advice. This podcast is for entertainment and of opinion only. Please keep in mind that there are a lot of risks associated with investing in the stock market, so do your own research and due diligence before making any investment decisions. Dominating Your Investment is a podcast under the umbrella of the Pounding the Table Podcast Network, and we thank you for listening. You can hear more content from myself and other team members in our network on our Pounding the Table YouTube channel and podcast. Thank you for listening, and don't wait to start dominating your investments.